Chapter Six, Part One, of A Master of Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Master of Mysteries, by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter Six, To Prove an Alibi, Part One. I first met Arthur Cresley in the late spring of 1892. I had been spending the winter in Egypt and was returning to Liverpool. One calm evening, about eleven o'clock, while we were still in the Mediterranean, I went on deck to smoke a final cigar before turning in. After pacing up and down for a time, I leant over the taffrail and began idly watching the tiny wavelets with their crests of white fire as they rippled away from the vessel's side. Presently I became aware of someone standing near me, and turning, saw that it was one of my fellow passengers, a young man whose name I knew, but whose acquaintance I had not yet made. He was entered in the passenger list as Arthur Cressley, belonged to an old family in Derbyshire, and was returning home from Western Australia, where he had made a lot of money. I offered him a light, and after a few preliminary remarks, we drifted into a desultory conversation. He told me that he had been in Australia for fifteen years, and having done well, was now returning to settle in his native land. "'Then you do not intend going out again?' I asked. "'No,' he replied. "'I would not go through the last fifteen years for double the money I have made. I suppose you will make London your headquarters?' "'Not altogether, but I shall have to spend a good deal of time there. My wish is for a quiet country life, and I intend to take over the old family property. We have a place called Cressley Hall in Derbyshire, which has belonged to us for centuries.' It would be a sort of white elephant, for it has fallen into pitiable decay, but luckily I am now in a position to restore it and set it going again in renewed prosperity. "'You are a fortunate man,' I answered. "'Perhaps I am,' he replied. "'Yes, as far as this world's goods go, I suppose I am lucky, considering that I arrived in Australia fifteen years ago with practically no money in my pocket. I shall be glad to be home again for many reasons.' chiefly because I can save the old property from being sold. "'It is always a pity when a fine old family seat has to go to the hammer for want of funds,' I remarked. "'That is true, and Cressley Hall is a superb old place. There is only one drawback to it, but I don't believe there is anything in that,' added Cressley in a musing tone. Knowing him so little, I did not feel justified in asking for an explanation. I waited, therefore, without speaking. He soon proceeded. I suppose I am rather foolish about it, he continued, but if I am superstitious, I have abundant reason. For more than a century and a half there has been a strange fatality about any Cressley occupying the hall. This fatality was first exhibited in 1700, when Barrington Cressley, one of the most abandoned libertines of that time, led his infamous orgies there. Of these even history takes note. There are endless legends as to their nature, one of which is that he had personal dealings with the devil in the large turret-room, the principal bedroom at the hall, and was found dead there on the following morning. Certainly since that date a curious doom has hung over the family, and this doom shows itself in a strange way, only attacking those victims who are so unfortunate as to sleep in the turret-room. Gilbert Cressley, the young court favorite of George the Third, was found mysteriously murdered there, and my own great-grandfather paid the penalty by losing his reason within those gloomy walls." "'If the room has such an evil reputation, I wonder that it is occupied,' I replied. 
It happens to be far and away the best bedroom in the house, and people always laugh at that sort of thing until they are brought face to face with it. The owner of the property is not only born there, as a rule, but also breathes his last in that old four-poster, the most extraordinary, wonderful old bedstead you ever laid eyes on. Of course, I do not believe in any malevolent influences from an unseen world, but the record of disastrous coincidences in that one room is, to say the least of it, curious. Not that this sort of thing will deter me from going into possession, and I intend to put a lot of money into Cressley Hall. Has no one been occupying it lately? I asked. Not recently. An old housekeeper has had charge of the place for the last few years. The agent had orders to sell the hall long ago, but though it has been in the market for a long time, I do not believe there was a single offer. Just before I left Australia, I wired to Murdoch, my agent, that I intended taking over the place, and authorized its withdrawal from the market. "'Have you no relations?' I inquired. "'None at all. Since I have been away, my only brother died. It is curious to call it going home when one has no relatives, and only friends who have probably forgotten one.' I could not help feeling sorry for Cressley as he described the lonely outlook. Of course, with heaps of money and an old family place, he would soon make new friends. But he looked the sort of chap who might be imposed upon, and although he was as nice a fellow as I had ever met, I could not help coming to the conclusion that he was not specially strong, either mentally or physically. He was essentially good-looking, however, and had the indescribable bearing of a man of old family. I wondered how he had managed to make his money. What he told me about his old hall had excited my interest, and as we talked, I managed to allude to my own peculiar hobby, and the delight I took in such old legends. As the voyage flew by, our acquaintance grew apace, ripening into a warm friendship. Cressley told me much of his past life, and finally confided to me one of his real objects in returning to England. While prospecting up-country, he had come across some rich veins of gold, and now his intention was to bring out a large syndicate in order to acquire the whole property, which he anticipated was worth at least a million. He spoke confidently of this great scheme, but always wound up by informing me that the money which he hoped to make was only of interest to him for the purpose of re-establishing Cressley Hall in its ancient splendor. As we talked, I noticed once or twice that a man stood near us who seemed to take an interest in our conversation. He was a thickly set individual, with a florid complexion and a broad German cast of face. He was an inveterate smoker, and when he stood near us with a pipe in his mouth, the expression of his face was almost a blank, but watching him closely, I saw a look in his eyes which betokened the shrewd man of business, and I could scarcely tell why, but I felt uncomfortable in his presence. This man, Wickham by name, managed to pick up an acquaintance with Cressley, and soon they spent a good deal of time together. They made a contrast as they paced up and down on deck, or played cards in the evening, the Englishman being slight and almost fragile in build, the German of the bulldog order, with a manner at once curt and overbearing. I took a dislike to Wickham, and wondered what Cressley could see in him. "'Who is the fellow?' I asked on one occasion, linking my hand in Cressley's arm and drawing him aside as I spoke. "'Do you mean Wickham?' he answered. "'I am sure I cannot tell you. I never met the chap before this voyage. He came on board at King George's Sound, where I also embarked. But he never spoke to me until we were in the Mediterranean. On the whole, Bell, I am inclined to like him. He seems to be downright and honest. He knows a great deal about the bush, too, as he has spent several years there. 
"'And he gives you the benefit of his information?' I asked. "'I don't suppose he knows more than I do, and it is doubtful whether he has had so rough a time.' "'Then, in that case, he picks your brains.' "'What do you mean?' The young fellow looked at me with those clear grey eyes which were his most attractive feature. "'Nothing,' I answered, "'nothing. Only if you will be guided by a man nearly double your age, I would take care to tell Wickham as little as possible.' Have you ever observed that he happens to be about when you and I are engaged in serious conversation? I can't say that I have. Well, keep your eyes open and you'll see what I mean. Be as friendly as you like, but don't give him your confidence, that is all. You are rather late in advising me on that score, said Cressley, with a somewhat nervous laugh. Wickham knows all about the old hall by this time. And your superstitious fears with regard to the turret room? I queried. Well, I have hinted at them. You will be surprised, but he is full of sympathy. Tell him no more, I said in conclusion. Cressley made a sort of half-promise, but looked as if he rather resented my interference. A day or two later we reached Liverpool. I was engaged long ago to stay with some friends in the suburbs, and Cressley took up his abode at the Prince's Hotel. His property was some sixty miles away, and when we parted he insisted on my agreeing to come down and see his place as soon as he had put things a little straight. I readily promised to do so, provided we could arrange a visit before my return to London. Nearly a week went by, and I saw nothing of Cressley. Then, on a certain morning, he called to see me. "'How are you getting on?' I asked. "'Capitally,' he replied. "'I have been down to the hall several times with my agent, Murdoch, and though the place is in the most shocking condition, I shall soon put things in order. But what I have come specially to ask you now is whether you can get away to-day and come with me to the hall for a couple of nights.' I had arranged with the agent to go down this afternoon in his company, but he has suddenly taken ill. He is rather bad, I believe, and cannot possibly come with me. He has ordered the housekeeper to get a couple of rooms ready, and though I am afraid it will be rather roughing it, I shall be awfully glad if you can come. I had arranged to meet a man in London on special business that very evening, and could not put him off, but my irresistible desire to see the old place from the description I had heard of it decided me to make an effort to fall in, as well as I could, with Cressley's plans. "'I wish I could go with you to-day,' I said. "'But that, as it happens, is out of the question. I must run up to town on some pressing business. But if you will allow me, I can easily come back again to-morrow. Can you not put off your visit until to-morrow evening?' "'No, I am afraid I cannot do that. I have to meet several of the tenants, and have made all arrangements to go by the five o'clock train this afternoon.' He looked depressed at my refusal, and after a moment said thoughtfully, "'I wish you could have come with me to-day. When Murdoch could not come, I thought of you at once. It would have made all the difference.' "'I am sorry,' I replied, "'but I can promise faithfully to be with you to-morrow. I shall enjoy seeing your wonderful old hall beyond anything, and as to roughing it, I am used to that. You will not mind spending one night there by yourself?' He looked at me as if he were about to speak but no words came to his lips. "'What is the matter?' I said, giving him an earnest glance. "'By the way, are you going to sleep in the turret-room?' "'I am afraid there is no help for it. The housekeeper is certain to get it ready for me. The owner of the property always sleeps there, and it would look like a confession of weakness to ask to be put into another bedroom.' "'Nevertheless, if you are nervous, I should not mind that,' I said. "'Oh, I don't know that I am absolutely nervous, Bell.' but all the same I have a superstition. At the present moment I have the queerest sensation. 
I feel as if I ought not to pay this visit to the hall. If you intend to live there by and by, you must get over this sort of thing, I remarked. Oh, yes, I must, and I would not yield to it on any account whatever. I am sorry I even mentioned it to you. It is good of you to promise to come to-morrow, and I shall look forward to seeing you. By what train will you come? We looked up the local timetable, and I decided on a train which would leave Liverpool about five o'clock. "'The very one I shall go down by to-day,' said Cresley. "'That's capital. I'll meet you with a conveyance of some sort and drive you over. The house is a good two hours' drive from the station, and you cannot get a trap there for love or money.' "'By the way,' I said, "'is there much the matter with your agent?' "'I cannot tell you. He seems bad enough. I went up to his house this morning and saw the wife.' It appears that he was suddenly taken ill, with a sort of asthmatic attack, to which he is subject. While I was talking to Mrs. Murdoch, a messenger came down to say that her husband specially wished to see me, so we both went to his room, but he had dozed off into a queer, restless sleep before we arrived. The wife said he must not be awakened on any account, but I caught a glimpse of him, and he certainly looked bad, and was moaning, as if in a good deal of pain. She gave me the keys of a bureau in his room, and I took out some estimates, and left a note for him, telling him to come on as soon as he was well enough. "'And your visit to his room never roused him?' I said. "'No, although Mrs. Murdoch and I made a pretty good bit of noise moving about and opening and shutting drawers. His moans were quite heart-rending, he was evidently in considerable pain, and I was glad to get away, as that sort of thing always upsets me.' "'Who is this Murdoch?' I asked. Oh, the man who has looked after the place for years. I was referred to him by my solicitors. He seems a most capable person, and I hope to goodness he won't be ill long. If he is, I shall find myself in rather a fix. I made no reply to this, and soon afterwards Cressley shook hands with me and departed on his way. I went to my room, packed my belongings, and took the next train to town. The business which I had to get through occupied the whole of that evening and also some hours of the following day. I found I was not able to start for Liverpool before the 1210 train at Euston, and should not therefore arrive at Lime Street before five o'clock, too late to catch the train for Brent, the nearest station to Cressley's place. Another train left Central Station for Brent, however, at seven o'clock, and I determined to wire to Cressley to tell him to meet me by the latter train. This was the last train in the day, but there was no fear of my missing it. I arrived at Lime Street almost to the moment, and drove straight to the Prince's Hotel, where I had left my bag the day before. Here a telegram awaited me. It was from Cressley, and ran as follows. Hope this will reach you in time. If so, call at Murdoch's house, number 12 Melville Gardens. If possible, see him, and get the documents referred to in Schedule A. He will know what you mean. Most important, Cressley. I glanced at the clock in the hall. It was now a quarter past five. My train would leave at seven. I had plenty of time to get something to eat and then go to Murdoch's. Having dispatched my telegram to Cressley, telling him to look out for me by the train which arrived at Brent at nine o'clock, I ordered a meal, ate it, and then hailing a cab, gave the driver the number of Murdoch's house. Melville Gardens was situated somewhat in the suburbs, and it was twenty minutes' drive from my hotel. When we drew up at Murdoch's door, I told the cabman to wait, and getting out, rang the bell. The servant who answered my summons told me that the agent was still very ill, and could not be seen by any one. I then inquired for the wife. I was informed that she was out, but would be back soon. 
I looked at my watch. It was just six o'clock. I determined to wait to see Mrs. Murdoch, if possible. Having paid and dismissed my cab, I was shown into a small, untidily kept parlour, where I was left to my own meditations. The weather was hot and the room close. I paced up and down restlessly. The minutes flew by, and Mrs. Murdoch did not put in an appearance. I looked at my watch, which now pointed to twenty minutes past six. It would take me, in an ordinary cab, nearly twenty minutes to reach the station. In order to make all safe, I ought to leave Murdoch's house in ten minutes from now, at the latest. I went and stood by the window, watching anxiously for Mrs. Murdoch to put in an appearance. Melville Gardens was a somewhat lonely place, and few people passed the house, which was old and shabby. It evidently had not been done up for years. I was just turning round in order to ring the bell to leave a message with the servant, when the room door was opened, and to my astonishment in walked Wickham, the man I had last seen on board the Euphrates. He came up to me at once and held out his hands. "'No doubt you are surprised at seeing me here, Mr. Bell,' he exclaimed. "'I certainly was for a moment,' I answered. But then I added, "'The world is a small place, and one soon gets accustomed to acquaintances cropping up in all sorts of unlikely quarters.' "'Why unlikely?' said Wickham. "'Why should I not know Murdoch, who happens to be a very special and very old friend of mine? I might as well ask you why you are interested in him.' "'Because I happen to be a friend of Arthur Cressley's,' I answered, "'and have come here on his business.' "'And so am I also a friend of Cressley's. He has asked me to go and see him at Cressley Hall some day, and I hope to avail myself of his invitation. The servant told me that you were waiting for Mrs. Murdoch. Can I give her any message from you?' "'I want to see Murdoch himself,' I said after a pause. "'Do you think it possible for me to have an interview with him?' "'I left him just now, and he was asleep,' said Wickham. "'He is still very ill.' and I think the doctor is a little anxious about him. It would not do to disturb him on any account. Of course, if he happens to awake, he might be able to tell you what you want to know. By the way, has it anything to do with Cressley Hall? Yes, I have just had a telegram from Cressley, and the message is somewhat important. You are quite sure that Murdoch is asleep? He was when I left the room, but I will go up again and see. Are you going to London to-night, Mr. Bell?' "'No, I am going down to Cressley Hall, and must catch the seven o'clock train. I have not a moment to wait.' As I spoke, I took out my watch. "'It only wants five and twenty minutes to seven, I said, and I never care to run a train to the last moment. There is no help for it, I suppose. I must go without seeing Murdoch. Cressley will in all probability send down a message to-morrow for the papers he requires.' "'Just stay a moment,' said Wickham, putting on an anxious expression. It is a great pity that you should not see Cressley's agent if it is vital as all that. Ah, here comes Mrs. Murdoch. Wait one moment. I'll go and speak to her. He went out of the room, and I heard him say something in a low voice in the passage. A woman's voice replied, and the next instant Mrs. Murdoch stood before me. She was a tall woman with a sallow face and sandy hair. She had a blank sort of stare about her, and scarcely any expression. Now she fixed her dull, light blue eyes on my face, and held out her hand. "'You are Mr. Bell?' she said. "'I have heard of you, of course, from Mr. Cressley. So you are going to spend to-night with him at Cressley Hall. I am glad, for it is a lonely place, the most lonely place I know.' "'Pardon me,' I interrupted. 
I cannot stay to talk to you now, or I shall miss my train. Can I see your husband, or can I not?' She glanced at Wickham. Then she said, with hesitation, "'If he is asleep, it would not do to disturb him. But there is a chance of his being awake now. I don't quite understand about the papers. I wish I did. It would be best for you to see him, certainly. Follow me upstairs.' "'And I tell you what,' called Wickham after us, "'I'll go and engage a cab, so you shall lose as short a time as possible, Mr. Bell.' I thanked him, and followed the wife upstairs. The stairs were narrow and steep, and we soon reached the small landing at the top. Four bedrooms opened into it. Mrs. Murdoch turned the handle of the one which exactly faced the stairs, and we both entered. Here the blinds were down, and the chamber was considerably darkened. The room was a small one, and the greater part of the space was occupied by an old-fashioned Albert bedstead, with the curtains pulled forward. Within I could just see the shadowy outline of a figure, and I distinctly heard the feeble groans of the sick man. "'Ah, what a pity! My husband is still asleep,' said Mrs. Murdoch, as she turned softly round to me and put a finger to her lips. "'It would injure him very much to awaken him,' she said. "'You can go and look at him if you like. You will see how very ill he is. I wonder if I could help you with regard to the papers you want, Mr. Bell?' "'I want the documents referred to in Schedule A,' I answered. "'Schedule A?' she repeated, speaking under her breath. "'I remember that name. Surely all the papers relating to it are in this drawer. I think I can get them for you.' She crossed the room as she spoke, and standing with her back to the bedstead, took a bunch of keys from a table which stood near, and fitted one into the lock of a high bureau made of mahogany. She pulled open a drawer and began to examine its contents. While she was so occupied I approached the bed, and bending slightly forward, took a good stare at the sick man. I had never seen Murdoch before. There was little doubt that he was ill. He looked very ill, indeed. His face was long and cadaverous, the cheekbones were high, and the cheeks below were much sunken in, the lips, which were clean-shaven, were slightly drawn apart, and some broken irregular teeth were visible. The eyebrows were scanty, and the hair was much worn away from the high and hollow forehead. The man looked sick unto death. I had seldom seen any one with an expression like his. The closed eyes were much sunken, and the moaning which came from the livid lips was horrible to listen to. After giving Murdoch a long and earnest stare, I stepped back from the bed, and was just about to speak to Mrs. Murdoch, who was rustling papers in the drawer, when the most strong and irresistible curiosity assailed me. I could not account for it, but I felt bound to yield to its suggestions. I turned again and bent close over the sick man. Surely there was something monotonous about that deep-drawn breath. Those moans, too, came at wonderfully regular intervals. Scarcely knowing why I did it, I stretched out my hand and laid it on the forehead. Good God! What was the matter? I felt myself turning cold. The perspiration stood out on my own brow. I had not touched a living forehead at all flesh was flesh. It was impossible to mistake the feel, but there was no flesh here. The figure in the bed was neither a living nor a dead man. It was a wax representation of one. But why did it moan, and how was it possible for it not to breathe? Making the greatest effort of my life, I repressed an exclamation, and when Mrs. Murdoch approached me with the necessary papers in her hand, took them from her in my usual manner. These all relate to Schedule A, she said, I hope I am not doing wrong in giving them to you, without my husband's leave. 
He looks very ill, does he not? He looks as bad as he can look, I answered. I moved towards the door. Something in my tone must have alarmed her, for a curious expression of fear dilated the pupils of her light blue eyes. She followed me downstairs. A hansom was waiting for me. I nodded to Wickham, did not even wait to shake hands with Mrs. Murdoch, and sprang into the cab. "'Central Station!' I shouted to the man, and then, as he whipped up his horse and flew down the street, "'A sovereign, if you can get there before seven o'clock!' We were soon dashing quickly along the streets. I did not know Liverpool well, and consequently could not exactly tell where the man was going. When I got into the hansom it wanted twelve minutes to seven o'clock. These minutes were quickly flying, and still no station. "'Are you sure you are going right?' I shouted through the hole in the roof. "'You'll be there in a minute, sir,' he answered. "'It's Lime Street Station you want, isn't it?' "'No, Central Station,' I answered. "'I told you Central Station. Drive there at once like the very devil. I must catch that train, for it is the last one to-night.' "'All right, sir, I can do it,' he cried, whipping up his horse again. Once more I pulled out my watch. The hands pointed to three minutes to seven. At ten minutes past we were driving into the station. I flung the man half a sovereign, and darted into the booking-office. "'To Brent, sir?' "'The last train has just gone,' said the clerk, with an impassive stare at me through the little window. I flung my bag down in disgust, and swore a great oath. But for that idiot of a driver I should have just caught the train. All of a sudden a horrible thought flashed through my brain. Had the cabman been bribed by Wickham? No directions could have been plainer than mine. I had told the man to drive to Central Station. Central Station did not sound the least like Lime Street Station.' How was it possible for him to make so grave a mistake? The more I considered the matter, the more certain I was that a black plot was brewing, and that Wickham was in the thick of it. My brain began to whirl with excitement. What was the matter? Why was a lay figure in Murdoch's bed? Why had I been taken upstairs to see it? Without any doubt, both Mrs. Murdoch and Wickham wished me to see what was such an admirable imitation of a sick man an imitation so good, with those ghastly moans coming from the lips, that it would have taken in the sharpest detective in Scotland Yard. I myself was deceived until I touched the forehead. This state of things had not been brought to pass without a reason. What was the reason? Could it be possible that Murdoch was wanted elsewhere, and it was thought well that I should see him in order to prove an alibi, should he be suspected of a ghastly crime? My God! What could this mean?' From the first I had mistrusted Wickham. What was he doing in Murdoch's house? For what purpose had he bribed the driver of the cab in order to make me lose my train? The more I thought, the more certain I was that Cressley was in grave danger, and I now determined, cost what it might, to get to him that night. End of Part 1 of Chapter 6